Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. What do you think of that? New music back there? A new name? I'm excited. It's a fresh start. Feels good. So what the heck have I been up to, huh? <laughs> it's been a while since I've talked to you guys, at least on mic. And uh, I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be doing this again. So if you've been following along my journey at all, uh, all this really started, I mean, three years ago, almost to the day, certainly to the week, um, when the pandemic really kicked off here in America, um, was really when my life started to change. Uh, I lost my longtime job on March 12th of 2020. I had no job anymore, and I, I suddenly had no purpose because that had been kind of my sole focus for 15 years of just <laughs> my career and being that person. And I had worked in, in television production. That's what my background was in. And I looked around at all the people that were my peers, and they were out of work as well, just because production shut down. And I thought, wow, we really have an opportunity to learn from each other in this moment, to share some wisdom, and to kind of share some best practices and figure out what's working as we're all trying to invent this together in real time. So I launched this podcast, Quarantine Creatives, uh, back in May of 2020, did almost 100 episodes of it, but it became tough at that point. Like People were starting to get tired of the pandemic. I got hired for a full-time job and was a lot busier than I'd been you know, in the last year prior, and it just felt like the right time to give up the podcast. I missed doing it, but like the framing of Quarantine Creatives, you know, it, was, it wasn't right for the moment anymore. But what I did do a little more than a year ago was I decided to restart my newsletter. I had been writing a newsletter as kind of a companion to the podcast uh, for a long time, and it really just kind of recapped what I was learning from my guests in different interviews. And I decided I had that platform. I had some subscribers. Why not just restart writing again? But it was difficult because the uh, the framing of the newsletter had always been, here's my guest's opinion on things. And all of a sudden, I was writing from a very personal place and sharing my thoughts on the world and my perspective. And what happened is I really learned a lot about myself <laughs> over the last year and the types of things that interest me and, and the types of content I want to write about. Uh, my background for 15 years was working at this old house. And the truth is, I, I like to think bigger than that. I like to kind of zoom out from just a single house and look at neighborhoods, look at communities, look at cities. History was a thing that I, I really tapped into and, and became a focus of the newsletter and how we grow our food and where it comes from and all that and, and how we make our own food became a focus as well. So there were kind of all these different things that I, I started writing about. But I happened to exchange some messages with Hamish McKenzie, who is one of the co-founders of, uh, of Substack. I think he's like the chief writing officer or something. He's a very Silicon Valley <laughs> title like that. But at any rate, I asked him for advice. And his first piece of advice right off the bat was drop quarantine creatives. He didn't think it was doing me any good. And uh, he thought people were over the quarantine. We're not quarantining anymore. And that was hard to hear. I'm like, I own that brand. That's been my thing for two years. Like, why would I give that up? And it took a long time to come up with something different. But in January this year, I rebranded the newsletter to Willoughby Hills. Something clicked and I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is right. But yeah, I'm going to start doing this podcast every two weeks. There'll be a new episode in your feed. So if you're not already, please subscribe. And I've started a membership program as well. So if you'd like podcast episodes early, 
The general public will be getting them on Thursdays. If you sign up as a member, you will get them on Mondays, a couple days early, as well as some additional newsletter posts and lots of other things in the works. But heathrasella.com slash podcast, if you go there, uh, that's where you can sign up to become a member. So with this new framing of Willoughby Hills, uh, I'm really excited today for the first guest on this new iteration of the podcast. Alexandra Lang, uh, she's an architecture critic, an author. Her previous book was The Design of Childhood. I have it here. I haven't read it yet, but I, uh, I picked it up from my library after talking to her because I'm just, I like her writing. I like her style. Her new book, which we're going to talk about today, is called Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall. She brings her architectural critic background to shopping malls. I mean, primarily suburban shopping malls, you know, starting in the 1950s or so, but also looking at urban shopping malls and just kind of how the, the format of the mall has changed, what it looks like around the world, and the implications of it kind of from a sociological standpoint. What does the mall mean or what did it mean in the past to different demographics, to teenagers, to, to the elderly? And as we talk about in the interview today, it's not something that a lot of people have covered, at least at this level of depth. So I hope you'll go check it out. The book is really, really interesting. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot from it. Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. It's a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, my talk with author Alexandra Lang. So I want to start just kind of where you begin the book, I guess, with Victor Gruen, who's kind of the, the father or grandfather, you know, of, of the modern mall. And part of what fascinates me, I guess, just to, to back up, like for some context, right before I picked up your book, I was in the middle of reading Jane Jacobs. But I was surprised, like I, I kind of stopped midway through her and, and started reading your book. And I was interested that like Jane Jacobs and Victor Gruen seem to be talking about the same thing but in very different ways. And I know Jane Jacobs kind of makes some cameos throughout the book and, you know, has some some interactions with Gruen. But I'm, I'm just curious sort of like why in, you know, in the 50s, 60s, it seems like everybody was was sort of thinking along these same lines of just we need public places to gather. We need places for, you know, teens to explore and kids to be kids. And, uh, you know, it just seems like they're they're similar threads, but very different approaches to the same problem, if that makes sense. Uh, d did you feel that at all? or? Yeah, I did feel that. I mean, I, uh, I did work on Jane Jacobs in the past, and I think you know most people know her for the death of like, Great American Cities, which is so city-focused. Sure. But she had a long career as an architectural journalist beforehand. And so one of the things that's interesting about her is that she wrote about a much broader range of topics before she became famous for that one thing. And one of the topics that she wrote about was Victor Gruen's first mall at Northland. And so, yeah, you see her bringing her sensibilities about people needing public space, people needing places to come together to Gruen's first shopping centers. And that is precisely the same rhetoric that Gruen is using. And I think it comes out of this moment in the post-war era where there was just so much building. Like right. when you read the numbers about, you know, how many highways, how many suburbs, you know, all of this, the great expansion post-war, it's hard to really see that in your mind's eye. But I think there was so much building, you know, so much money out there. 
And people were really kind of flabbergasted by how quickly it was happening and what it was looking like and trying to figure out how to maintain some sense of, you know, I guess, older human values within all of that new building. Yeah, because it's not just it's interesting, I guess, for for people like you and I that sort of grew up in the aftermath of that, that like, at least for me, it's like, oh, the suburbs have just always been there. But you're right. Like they're they're relatively new and, and everything that goes with it, including the highways and the shopping centers that like, yeah, I guess people were adjusting to it. Well, and that was one of the, the points that I was trying to make with this book. I feel like a lot of post-war urbanist history has left out the, the shopping factor, essentially. Right. You know, people didn't think that the malls were that important. But I came to believe that they were really important and it was kind of snobbery that had eliminated them from the larger discussion and that without malls, the suburbs really would have been dystopian or even more dystopian than some people find them. Because really, like, what were the women and children in those homes going to do all day? Where were they going to shop? Like, there's so little provision for that and so little discussion of that. So I think that even though Gruen came to hate what the suburbs had become and, and there are massive problems with the suburbs, I think he did do a service by understanding that people needed a marketplace, you know, even if it was sometimes inserted awkwardly into this larger car landscape. Right. Well, and it's interesting, like in hearing his take on like what a mall should be initially before he really got into building them. It's it's similar to kind of like you you take us on an arc, the book, I guess, of like Gruen's idea of, you know, kind of a mixed use place where people, yes, they can shop, but they can also have office space or medical offices or um, apartments, you know, like uh, multimodal. And that's kind of what we're building now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. These lifestyle centers and stuff. And like, yeah, it's, it's interesting that like it took us as a people whatever, 70 years to catch up to that idea. But that was sort of where Gruen was originally with all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his plans for Southdale, which was the first indoor mall, which was a Dyna, Minnesota in 1956, included this whole range of new buildings around the mall, including a medical center and a school and some high-rise apartments. And then, you know, some single-family homes, like one layer further out that would have been walkable to the mall. You know, all the things that people are doing, in fact, in some mall redevelopments and just this in the news at the moment, I, I talk about in the first chapter of the book, my first mall, which is Northgate Mall in Durham, North Carolina. Sure. And it's currently being redeveloped. And the people who own it want to put in like kind of a more basic open shopping strip with a supermarket uh-huh. and they want to build um, bio and life sciences offices and the neighbors in Walltown nearby really want them to also build affordable housing and are like why won't you consider housing why are you putting in all of this surface parking and and the neighbors are correct like there's plenty of room for that and what they're pushing for is something closer to Garoon's original idea and the mall the people who own it are are more retail developers and so that's just like not something that they have in their general portfolio but hopefully they'll be pushed to be smarter about it yeah and that's as i was talking about kind of that arc that you take us on you know the book ends in this place where like it, it's funny i was telling people that i was going to talk to you and i you know this woman wrote this history of the mall and you know it's it's really fascinating and sort of the the general reaction i heard was like well malls are dead you know and like <laughs> You end on this idea that they're really not or that they're this opportunity 
for redevelopment and just kind of the right the right structures in place the right bones are there it's just it's making better use you know as opposed to a single use you you have this this space that's you know off of a, a bunch of freeways why not turn it into something that that can kind of be used throughout the day and and through for multi uses, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I basically contended with that attitude the entire time I was writing the book. Like yeah. I would tell people I'm writing a book about malls, and they'll be like, "Oh, dead malls." I'll be like, "No, not really. I'm not going to devote two years of my life to writing about dead <laughs> malls. Like that's not that's kind of that's not what I'm about." And as somebody from a design background, like I believe that design can fix things, and right. so. Gruen's original design was supposed to fix a problem. And I think a lot of the mall redevelopments now are also trying to fix a problem. And yes, like in a lot of cases, it's the same problem. But there are also, you know, new things that have been introduced into the environment from the mall. I mean, one thing that people kept telling me is, you know, everyone knows where the mall is. Like if you say to somebody in Durham, North Carolina, oh, it's over by Northgate, they immediately know what that is. And that's actually like... That's actually a valuable thing that people know where it is and that it has that easy car access. And that's why so many malls were turned into, you know, COVID testing sites and vaccination sites during the pandemic. And I still think that can be valuable, even as many of the malls transform into something else. Like they still have that name recognition and place recognition. Yeah. And kind of in a way that it's interesting, like the you talk about in the book that malls are kind of an evolution of strip malls, which had kind of come first. We still build a lot of strip malls, but we don't build a lot of like the kind of enclosed malls of, you know, kind of the 70s and 80s. And yeah, just that idea of like, it's over by Best Buy, maybe <laughs> doesn't ring the same bell or, you know, which Best Buy or, you know, like it's it's a different thing. But I'm curious about that, though, with the strip malls, like that when I think of new mall construction in the last decade, kind of anywhere in the country as I'm driving around, they are these kind of strip malls. And like, why why has that form endured, which has been here since, you know, the 30s or 40s, like kind of as people moved out of Main Street and first started expanding away from the center of town, that was the form. And it still continues. But that enclosed mall has really fallen out of favor. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, well, strip malls have been and and still are just so much cheaper to build. They don't need any architectural points of interest. Yeah. But they're also not made for people to meet at them, right? A strip mall is made for you to drive in a park and do your one errand and leave. So they have tremendous throughput, like, you know, like so many cars coming in and out of their parking lots all day, but they're not really a place. You know, theories of retail have gone up and down and in and out over the years. And I think strip malls really apply to a theory of retail that is, you know, people want their stuff as quickly as possible in the most basic way. And that is not at all what Gruen's idea of the mall was. And that's not at all what enclosed malls have been traditionally. They've been much more about atmosphere and combining tasks and doing an errand, but also doing some window shopping and also going to the movies. And so if people are thinking about making a place that people want to be, then it's an enclosed mall. But a strip mall is all about, you know, errands and efficiency. Yeah. Utility versus kind of discovery. And right. 
It's interesting, I guess, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about the internet and just that process of discovery gets harder when you have every option available to you. And it's easy to, you know, sit on your couch while you're watching Netflix and scroll through, you know, the the 40 different options that exist for something (laughs) versus, you know, wandering into a store and saying, oh, I I didn't even know they made this. Like, I have to buy it. You know, I wonder if that mall has experienced how much the internet has has been a factor in that. Well, I have a lot of theories about retail, but I think the problem is that malls and retail in general has tried to become like the internet rather than mm. going back to some of its roots in, you know, kind of curation and service and having fewer selections. Yeah. And I think we're heading for a really a giant crisis of bricks and mortar retail that's less about people not wanting to shop in person and more about stores not really providing a good experience. Um, I mean, there have been all these stories recently about, you know, drugstores kind of locking everything up sure. um, because of these false stories about shoplifting gangs. And it's like, yeah, I mean, going to the drugstore is not my favorite retail experience anyway. But if you make it like that much more difficult, like why wouldn't you order drugstore things online? In fact, like I think like, you know, drugstore shopping online makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense to do online is things that have more variables like clothes or, you know, body care products, you know, things that you want to touch, things that you want to smell, things that like you want somebody to pick out, like these are the six nice sweaters rather than like 200 trashy sweaters. Right. And so, yeah, if I were predicting like which businesses are going to be successful, it will be ones that think more about really the origins of the department store, which then morphs into the mall and really provided a service in terms of taste and curation and, you know, people to help you. I mean, I think, you know, sites like the wire cutter are essentially doing that for the internet. And right. the fact that, you know, we have all this online shopping and then we need a layer of essentially curation sites to tell us what to pick on those is <laughs> is a ver- is sort of perverse and is also a version of that older form of retail. Like right. if the wire cutter is the woman who's been working in the appliance section of Macy's for 30 years and can tell you, oh, no, this is the juicer that you want. Right. As opposed to somebody that's, you know, maybe making minimum wage and doesn't really care about what's there. You know, they've been trained to ring you out on a register, but but they don't right. have an intimacy with the product. And, and that kind of translates across the experience, I guess. Um Part of what I'm thinking about, too, there is just you talk about, you know, clothes shopping or something, something that occurred to me, especially towards the end of the book, is you talk about malls that are reinventing. And a lot of times it's it's going from kind of the stereotypical 80s mall, which is, you know, it, it's white, it's middle class, uh, it's Sears and JCPenney to something very different, sometimes that have uh, other uses, uh, libraries or, or universities or something else that's a draw for the mall. But sometimes focusing on kind of specific local uh, ethnic groups or, you know, catering to, you know, Vietnamese American population or a Mexican American population or, you know, whatever it is. And it, it kind of occurs to me that part of when I think of like the dead mall and malls are dying, it's not the physical building I think of. It's kind of this this version of the mall that is it is very white. It's very homogenized. It's very middle class. Like malls are still surviving they're just not in the same form that I think of. And that's probably a good thing. Like when you mentioned clothes shopping, like, yeah, if I can just go on the Gap's website, why am I going to go into the Gap? But if there is some local boutique that 
has you know one of a kind items that's probably worth a trip and it and it's going to be a joy to discover what's new there yeah yeah i think that's really true i mean when you see all the the many many de- dead mall videos on the internet like a lot of what they dwell on is these stores that and brands that are also defunct right like yeah. so it's the gate that's come down and the and the you know kb toys sign or whatever and we remember shopping at kb toys when we were kids but kb toys hasn't been in business for i don't know how long so yeah, it's the mall itself as a as a body, but then it's the individual brands and stores that actually like were driven out of business sometimes by the internet, but sometimes just by t- changing tastes. Right, and that's fine. I mean, like one of the points that I definitely make is that the suburbs themselves are not the same as they were in Gruen's day, and so malls that have actually adapted to suit their suburbs um, are the ones. That are successful. Um, and I talk about, you know, kind of specific ethno burbs and ethnic malls that are aimed at certain Asian American groups, Latin American groups, uh, even Afri- African groups um, in different places. But it's even, you know, if you go to a mall in Los Angeles, there are a lot of like Asian American businesses and Asian chains in there mixed in with the gap and everything else, just sure. because like that's what the population of Los Angeles is like you know din tai fung which is popular with everyone you know like has huge brunch lines for dumplings every weekend and that is a mall restaurant now whereas in the past it would have been something like applebee's yeah it's true and and it kind of shows the evolving tastes uh as you say not just of kind of the specific ethnic groups but america at large too they kind of start as as an ethnic enclave and then it, it becomes kind of part of mass culture too yeah yeah i mean i talk a little bit about um bubble tea which is very popular with all the the teens and tweens in my neighborhood sure and um you see that at almost every mall now and at one time that might have seemed like an exotic import that you could only get in chinatown but now it is literally at every mall it would have been cinnabon or auntie anne's (laughs) 25 years ago or something yeah yeah um We've been talking a lot about the content, but I kind of want to back up too and just uh, talk about your experience as an author and specifically, you know, kind of coming to this book. Like, where did the idea and inspiration come from to to write about malls at this level? Well, I think it's really connected to my last book, which was called The Design of Childhood. And that book was about all the ways that design shapes children's lives from, you know, building blocks to schools to playgrounds to yeah. urban design. And the most popular chapter in that book by far was the playgrounds chapter. And, you know, playgrounds are something that like we've all been to, we've all experienced, we've all been bored at a playground. <laughs> um, but a lot of people don't think of them as being a designed object. They don't think of them as having a history. And I realized that malls were kind of the same thing. Like people saw them as kind of fun and cheap and, you know, kind of you know for teenagers, for women, like categories that we don't always take seriously. Um, in history. And yet, like, they were 70 years old. They were undergoing this tremendous transformation. There were all these viral dead mall accounts. So I was like, you know what? It feels like it's time for there to be a history because we have enough distance from the origin to really look at it. And there's a lot of news going on. Yeah. And it's it's interesting, too, because uh, as you say, it's uh, people have their own personal mall and uh, we think of them sometimes as pedestrian but at least in kind of the first half, as you're looking at, at the architectural history of it, it's 
it's looking at kind of the highest forms of of the design you know uh, southdale or or uh, north park uh, either the the innovators or like the highest end of the high you know the, it's not not your local pedestrian mall i guess you, you chose deliberately i think to focus on kind of high-end architecture right yeah i did i mean this is definitely the architecture historian in me who wanted to point out that at one time malls were thought to be you know a forum worthy of the most famous architects in the u.s working on them yeah um and so i thought that was important kind of to to valorize their history um, but also, initially, malls were developed by these very small like family businesses, and there was a lot of care put into the design. So I think even if you grow up going to a much more average mall, there are trickle-down design elements that you can see like from the high end to the low end. I talk about just how the basic forms of the mall and how they get repeated from you know the eye shape with a department store on all either end to a V with three department stores, you know, to a donut shape, et cetera, et cetera. So I was hoping that people would be able to see like, oh, okay, like my mall was not as grand as this, but they did, you know, put a little skylight in the middle and kind of a sad fountain with three palm trees and that they were gesturing at something grander and at like a, a bigger, fancier mall idea that maybe you would have had in a bigger city yeah it, it's it's the trickle down you see like in fashion from like a runway show to what ends up at you know old navy or something or you know yeah a mercedes yeah, exactly. into a toyota or you know whatever it is but um there's a lot of kind of sociology in this as well and not surprising i guess for kind of mid-century development and things but race uh is is kind of an undertone through a lot of the book as well and just kind of how not necessarily like open segregation, I guess, but segregation by design kind of played into uh, the way that malls were built, the way that they were policed, the way that they were thought of. I mean, you you make an analogy to a castle at one point that, you know, the parking lot is a moat and these kind of buttressed uh, concrete walls. They are kind of thought of as these or they, they were designed, I guess, to be these suburban safe havens almost from the city or other, uh, you know, other racial groups or whatever. And that that racial history is really there throughout. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. There have been a lot of books recently kind of delving more deeply into the history of redlining, um, into like the specific racist histories of certain suburbs. And I realized very early on in my research, like, oh, well, if the first, like, let me look up, if the first indoor shopping mall was built in Edina, Minnesota in 1956, like, did Edina have restrictive racial covenants? So, yeah. like, would all of the people living near the mall have been white? And in fact, it did. Right. So, it's like, even if, you know, Gruen is not talking about race and Gruen, you know, was Jewish and fled the Nazis and actually had quite a um, diverse practice, he was not racist, but his product ended up being used in this racist way because it was built in areas that would have been extremely difficult for black people to access. Right. Um, and that was true of most malls, um, especially built in that early period. Um, and even some malls built in the 60s where the neighborhoods around them actually became less white soon after their completion, like that tended to create some tensions between the mall owners who had kind of planned their mall for white people and then they had neighbors who were black and they weren't sure how they felt about that and that's where you start to get into problems with the mall cops problems with the policing of teenagers in the mall and all the rest of it where 
mall owners try to keep the population of consumers in the mall to, you know, kind of what they expect, what they plan for. And that's not the reality of the world today. Yeah, for sure. Um, Getting back to kind of the writing process and all for a minute, um, you mentioned in the book that this was all kind of written during the the shutdown days of, you know, 2020, 2021. Talk to me a little bit about just your experience writing during the pandemic and specifically how this content, which is about socializing and being together and gathering, having that as a backdrop to what you're writing. Yeah, basically, I had a plan where I was going to spend the first two months of 2020 at the library. New York Public Library, like reading all of the history of the mall books that I could get. So I did that, you know, January, February. And in February, I went down to Dallas to go to North Park, which is a scene that that I talk about in the book. And I had a series of other mall visits planned. Um, You know, I was going to take my family to the Mall of America for spring break. I was going to, you know, tour a bunch of malls in Los Angeles, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that got canceled because of the pandemic. And I kind of had to regroup. And I talked with my editor and he was like, well, you know, you worked for a long time as a journalist, so it's important to you to have these scenes and kind of on-the-spot interviews. But I don't think that's actually so important for this book because a lot of what you're talking about is these malls in the past. So what you need to reconstruct is how they felt to people at that time. And I realized that he was right. And then I also realized that, you know, thanks to incredible digitization of archives and honestly to YouTube, like I could look at videos from the TV station when Axmall opened or, you know, it was easy for me to find all the articles from the early days of, you know, why mall. And so in fact, like the feelings that people had had in the past about these malls and, and the kind of on the ground reporting was not something that I had to do because other people had already done it. And thankfully, it was not that hard, you know, working in my office, in my house for me to get at all of that information. It was a time, though, too, where, like you mentioned earlier, just COVID drive throughs and stuff at malls that like malls were shut down and they were already, you know, in trouble. At least the big department stores uh, had, had kind of been, you know, the writing was on the wall for a long time. And it felt like, you know, the pandemic could have been the death knell for, for certainly for department stores and I mean, for Sears and things that has been, but maybe even for malls in general. Like, was there ever <laughs> was there ever a point as you're writing this that you're just like, who knows how relevant this is going to be or who knows how this will flip or or just what the resolution of this story is going to be, I guess. Yeah, I definitely had a certain amount of fear. I mean, I, you know, I went into this believing, as I say at some point in the book, that people need people. Like, yeah. I have certain beliefs about, like, what people are like and how architecture, like, serves those preferences. So those didn't really change. I did talk to a lot of mall experts during the pandemic, you know, basically saying, like, is this changing everything? Like, what, what, how on earth am I going to write the conclusion to the book? And almost all of them said the pandemic is not going to change the trajectory. It's going to accelerate some bad things, which it Mm. definitely did. Like, it accelerated the rate of closure. It accelerated some department store bankruptcies. But it didn't radically alter the narrative. Interesting. So the things that people would have had to do to fix the mall before the pandemic, you know, are the same things that they have to do to fix the mall after the pandemic. Right. If you have an anemic uh, department store as one of your anchors, 
it probably wasn't drawing people in 2019 <laughs> anyways, you know, and, and maybe turning that into a community center or, a, you know, a trampoline park or whatever it is would have been a better investment anyways, you know, had that department store not closed or consolidated or whatever it is. Exactly. I mean, when I visited North Park in February 2020, one of the department stores was about to close. And um, the owners of that mall, the Nashes had started thinking about, oh, like, maybe it could become a co-working space or, oh, maybe it could become, you know, a fancy gym with a climbing wall. Yeah. And like, that's exactly the conversation that we're having now. I mean, actually, one of the conversations that I think has changed a bit. Well, I don't really think we're post-pandemic, but let's say right. getting towards post-pandemic. The idea of more co-working spaces in suburbs because... Yeah. All of the people that, you know, were working remotely, many of them can continue to work remotely, but many of them found that they didn't want to continue to work remotely from their house. So yep. what if they could work remotely from an office space that's just down the road? You know, co-working was always thought to be this urban project, but in fact, now it seems like there is a need for suburban co-working spaces that may be are adjacent to, you know, a restaurant where you could take somebody for a business lunch. And wouldn't it be nice if there was also like a medical office down the hall? And so like, that's the way I see a more organic future for some of these mall spaces. Um, you know, I've said all along, I don't think department stores are coming back. Like I have such like love and respect for the heyday of the department store, but sure. I think they just lost their centrality in fashion and in kind of service providing. I don't see how you, you know, move something that big into the future. Yeah. So replacing the anchors is like the number one thing that so many malls need to do. Figuring out what is gonna suit their community now and and can actually fit in, you know, a box that size. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. Kind of we talked a lot during the pandemic about just the polarization of America and things that, you know, a lot of the guests on my podcast, that was kind of a, a recurring theme. I see that on the retail side, too, of just thinking, again, going back to kind of homogenization and, you know, everything being the same across the board that, yeah, you could go to a Sears or a JCPenney or a Macy's or whatever, and you'd buy what was on the shelf. But now it's like everybody, there are so many different discrete tastes, whether that's broken down by age or interest or income level or whatever, people are looking for more individualized content, I guess. And, and you know, we see that on, on the TV and, and film side, too, of like, you know, there's a million things to watch on streaming versus 70 years ago, there were three channels on TV and you, you better like Bonanza because that's what's on right now. You know, it, like, it's just interesting, sort of, we have become a very fractured society but that's opened up the door for kind of individualization and customization almost. Yeah. I mean, I think the issue is that so many businesses, especially those owned by private equity, only see getting bigger and bigger and bigger right. as the goal. Yeah. And I just don't really think that's healthy or possible for a lot of businesses. Like some things should stay niche and be very successful in that niche yeah. um, because like you've got a great business, you have a really loyal audience, but there is just a limit to how big that audience is going to be. Yeah. Going back to kind of the, the early days of, of writing this book, I'm really curious, like if there's a moment for you 
when a switch flips from like like I can imagine there you're probably doing a lot of research without even necessarily being conscious of it at first or just you know you're writing things for other publications or or reading interesting things and these ideas are kind of starting to solidify in your head like at what point does it go from like oh I'm reading a lot about malls lately to like oh, this is a book and I should make it a proposal and I should, you know, <laughs> set my calendar so that spring breaks at the Mall of America. Like, just w- talk to me about that process. Well, both my previous book on childhood and this book were really born out of a series of articles that I wrote over time. And yeah. I realized that I kept kind of returning to a topic. For malls, I think the first time I wrote about malls was in 2018 um, because I got interested in this project by Renzo Piano then. Pritzker Prize-winning Italian architect um, for this place called City Center Bishop Ranch, which is in like the far, far exurbs of the Bay Area. Uh I mean, I'm not exactly sure even where. I mean, I've looked at it on the map, but I don't know how it feels on the ground. And there were all these articles about it. And, you know, Renzo Piano was talking about it being a piazza. And I'm like, wait, what are they talking about? This sounds like a mall. And I was like, well, why aren't they calling it a mall if it is a mall and it is, in fact, a mall? And, you know, is the they in that case like the company or is the they like the press or is it all of it? Uh, Both. Both. It was both the kind of teaser site. It was the interviews that people were doing with Renzo Piano. And it was the local press mostly in San Francisco about the mall. None of the people packaging this exciting new retail opportunity were calling it a mall, yeah. but it seemed very clear to me that it was a mall and all of the things that they were saying about it providing a center for the sprawling suburb and, you know, having, you know, movie nights outside and a fountain for kids to play and like all of it sounded like the things that I had read in the past about Victor Gruen and malls. So I started just digging into why they weren't calling it a mall and pointing out the absurdity of everyone ignoring the actual history of malls in writing about this. So that was the first piece. And then I guess like about a year later, Hudson Yards opened in New York City, which is this giant vertical mall on the west side. And so I covered that. I was writing for Curve at the time. I covered that and I found it to be a very terrible mall. So that again, like allowed me to dig into like, okay, yes, like everyone's saying malls are dead, but they built this new mall, but this mall does not feel right to me. Right. <laughs> um, like there are all these problems with it just from a kind of design and public interface point of view. So I wrote that story. So yeah, I was just, I was just building up a body of work kind of questioning what was happening with malls. Why? Then developers who seem to still be making them were calling them something else. And like, you know, what exactly was going on? And as I talked to more people about it, just people seemed really intrigued by it. And I was like, yeah. And I looked to see if there had been any major books on the mall. And really the last one had been in the 1980s. And it was called The Mauling of America by William um, Severini Kowinski, which Uh is a pretty funny book, which I read for my book. But he definitely takes the kind of like, I'm this funny, duddy, older man trying to figure out what's happening at the mall point of view, which is not at all my point of view. So it just seemed peculiar to me that there was this architectural form, retail form, you know, kind of culturally important object that like didn't have a book about it. 
Um, and I felt like between my knowledge of architecture history and my love of pop culture, like those seemed like the, the ideal your kind of knowledge basis to bring to bear on like what's going on with the mall. Right. It is interesting just that you touch on the pop culture piece that yeah. that is kind of having a moment and the, these, uh, I guess, brands, for lack of a better word, that kind of hold this nostalgia like you know, I'll scroll through YouTube and see, you know, the story of Radio Shack. And I'm like, oh, I've got to watch that. What what happened with Radio Shack? I miss those guys. Or, you know, there's a Twitter account I follow that's like used to be a Pizza Hut. And it's just all these, you know, pictures <laughs> of Pizza Huts that are like yeah. doctor's offices now. You know, like th- there's a weird nostalgia for that stuff that I don't think maybe couldn't have existed pre-internet anyways, because I don't know that a publisher would have said, oh, yes, please, you know, give us a photo essay on, you know, 100 Pizza Hut buildings. But maybe they would have. I don't know. But it's just it is interesting that we are kind of reexamining the things that were often thought of as lowbrow or, you know, uncultured, like they're kind of having a moment right now, I guess. And and you've proven, I guess, are, are worth reexamining. Yeah, well, I think we're also running up against kind of this 30 to 40 year window that um, people in the preservation world often talk about mm. where it takes us basically 30 or 40 years to perceive something as history. Yeah. And so for I grew up in the 80s, you know, people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, these brands of our youth, these malls of our youth are now history and can be seen as such. And so that's why you start to get books like mine but also shows like stranger things which i you know i put the whole stranger things mall experience in my book proposal to kind of prove that you know this was on people's mind yeah but you know the duffer brothers grew up in the triangle area of north carolina basically 10 years after i did and so they they are also reflecting on their own childhood and they're making it into a fictional tv show but it's very much the same process like what what were we doing at the mall like, why does that still feel meaningful to us? Like, we have this distance, but also, you know, as people have their own children, they think, like, do my kids want to go to the mall? And, like, isn't it sad that they can't in some cases? You yeah. know, because like, I think a lot of kids in the suburbs are really alienated and have trouble, you know, finding places to go with their friends. Yeah, I think it, it's a historical process um, that has definitely been aided by various internet forms, you know, everything from subreddits to YouTube videos to, you know, Twitter accounts about dead pizza huts. Yeah, no, totally. And I guess kind of wrapping it all up, I, I want to go to a mall that you actually start the book with, um, American Dream, <laughs> which, you know, kind of opened right as the pandemic was getting underway. And it's it's bizarre. I mean, you've been there. I've, I've been there. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, like, it's still not really opened i guess or kind of like there's just it's it's maybe a 50 percent, 60 percent occupancy rate there's a lot of like you know murals for stores that will eventually be there but it's it's disorienting you can't figure out where you are ever i, I don't even know how to describe it it's just like yeah. a, like somebody took what should be a mall and just really messed up the stuff that was working and <laughs> did you know didn't do the stuff that I don't know. They they leaned into the wrong things, I guess, is kind of how I would critique it. But I'm curious, sort of, your reaction to to visiting American Dream and sort of where you contextualize that relative to other malls. Like, is is this the last breath of that old form before we get into something else, or you know, will there be an American Dream in Texas <laughs> five years from now? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, overall, I agree with your assessment. There's something 
like deeply wrong at a design and orientation level at American Dream that just sucks all the life out of it. It's like even if it did have more people shopping in it, you feel like there's no central gathering space. There's no kind of place where you could sit and like see people walking around and see all the stores. Like it just like missed a lot of the lessons of older malls. And it also, you know, it was developed by the Gramesian family who also developed the West Edmonton Mall and the Mall of America. And both of those malls, um, which operate at the same extremely large scale, have, you know, amusement parks and rides at the center of them. Yeah. And an American dream, they decided to put all of the amusement parks kind of behind glass doors. So yeah. they're not central to the experience, but they're like a separate ticketed experience. And I think that was also a really problematic decision because I still think there's something extremely cool at the Mall of America where instead of the center of the mall being a fountain, it's a giant roller coaster. And right. you, you never have that moment at American Dream. Yeah. And it, it, Mall of America, the layout is, is I've been there once. And I, my recollection is it's kind of a square or rectangle, as you say, kind of around the amusement park. It's a blown up version of kind of what we all had in our neighborhoods, I think. Whereas American Dream is just it's kind of corridors upon corridors and you never, you never feel like you get to a center. You feel like you're always just in a maze, I guess. Yes. No, Mall America is very like a simple kind of dumb plan, but it works because people want to feel like, okay, it's divided into four quadrants. I'm in, you know, like zone A. So if I want to go to zone B, like I have to, you know, like go down the hallway past the roller coaster and, you know, turn left. We want it to be that simple. And American Dream is definitely not, not like that. Yeah. I mean, I also think just from what we were talking about before, the, the malls of the future that are going to be successful are going to be really tailored to their communities, which are now, you know, much more diverse in age, race, um, ethnicity than ever before. And so building a large mall that's supposed to serve some imaginary everyone is really like not the move in 2023. I mean, I think it was probably already not the move in 2019. I mean, they had the worst timing ever, but it was already a project that just had gone on for too long and I think missed its moment. Yeah. I mean, it was under construction in what, 2010, 2012. So like it, it's been, it was a long time it, coming. It, <laughs> it yeah. wasn't. It was an endless saga. I mean, you know, there were different owners, there were different plans, there were different like exterior cladding. I'm maybe somebody, maybe somebody else is already preparing an entire book on the rise and fall of American Dream. I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, I, you know, everyone asks me what I think is going to happen to it. I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, I feel like one of my kids got asked to a birthday party at the water park there and had a great time. So yeah. some, somehow I think maybe the indoor ski slope and the water park are going to go on being successful and the rest of the mall is just going to never open. Yeah. I mean, my kids want to go. Their their birthdays are in the spring. And we said, where do you want to go? We had stopped there for like an hour coming through New York, I guess over Thanksgiving. We just, we went in and like rode one ride at the amusement park. Like we really want to go to Nickelodeon at, at, uh, at American <laughs> Dream. I don't like it, but I guess they do. And I guess there's appeal there. You know, hey, everyone's got different tastes, but um I want to kind of end with something we touched on earlier, too, and that's just kind of the reset of malls. What I loved, kind of how you ended the book, 
is this idea that malls, if you if you think of them as like, what are they at their core? It's a giant, you know, several hundred acres of land that could be repurposed. That's often very convenient to to roads and housing and all that. And like, just the idea that like, it's not going to take much to start over. It's not going to take much to make these centerpieces again with the right investment, with with some smart planning and smart design. Like a mall could be a thing again, but in a very different form. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, even from an ecological point of view, like it's weird to think of mall, a mall as something that could even be ecological, but that land is already cleared. You know, that parking lot is already built. So to reuse the concrete and steel that have already gone into, you know, building the body of the mall for something else, like is the best thing that we can do at this time when, you know, commodity prices are so high. And we don't want to take over more, you know, green fields for new housing or, you know, new retail or new office space. Like we should be using the space of the malls for all of these things that that people need. All right, there we go. Alexandra Lang. That's great. Learned a ton. And uh, go check out the book. The book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. If you want to know all about where your shopping malls came from, go read it. It's fascinating. There's a lot of stuff. I, I touched on some of it in a newsletter issue recently, but uh, we didn't even get to touch on it in this interview of just sort of urban malls, malls for different demographics. And and another piece that we didn't touch on at all in this interview, but was really fascinating to me was how the the mall format has kind of left America now and has become this own completely different thing in other parts of the world and almost like a, an evolution of the form that we missed out on. So yeah, go read the book. Really, really interesting. Meet Me by the Fountain by Alexandra Lang. Before we go, let me tell you again, I got this membership program I just started for Willoughby Hills. If you want early access to podcast episodes, if you want member-only posts to the newsletter, you can sign up for that. Uh, there's a there's a charge for it, but it's about the, cu- the cost of a cup of coffee uh, you know, every month. So if you wanted to buy me a cup of coffee, there you go. You could do that and get some other benefits as well. Go to heathrasella.com slash podcast to sign up for that. Or you can go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter and get on the list for the Willoughby Hills newsletter. That comes out twice a week. That is free. Although if you want to be a subscriber, the benefits go over there as well. And there will be additional posts just for members. But if you're not on the list, go check it out. Again, I've been writing over there for like the last year plus, And uh, it's been really helpful for me to process the world. And I think it's it's been engaging for a lot of people. And it's connected me to a lot of interesting people. So I am uh, I'm very grateful for that. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Heath Rosella. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new podcast episode. In the meantime, check out the newsletter, heathrosella.com slash newsletter. Thanks for listening to Willoughby Hills. Stay safe. <laughs>